0: When the ancient Romans uh, started conquering uh, the Greeks, one of the things that they learned is to really appreciate Greek art, and the sort of humanism of Greek art, the, the, the statues, the beautiful marble statues that the Greeks were producing and had been producing in Hellenism. And so the wealthy Romans would certainly want whatever beautiful statue they can have in their home. Now the problem is some of these statues have become hundreds of years old at this point, a couple hundred years and started cracking and started um, um, yeah, just wearing down. And good traders and good sellers would learn that if they could melt some white wax and put it over the cracks, that they could cover the, 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 the flaws in the marble at this point in time. And so uh, it became sort of a practice by traders to deceive people by covering all the imperfections of these statues and so uh, as as carvers, as traders um, or as the, the makers of the art they, they wanted a way to sort of a, to make it official that there's no flaws or they started having inspections to make sure that there were no flaws as part of the trade and it would become a, a stamp uh, on the statues uh, that would say uh, sign Sarah uh, C-E-R-A Sarah, like Michael Sarah um, and, and it means uh, without wax Um, And so that phrase, the the sign Sarah, uh, eventually uh, becomes just this phrase that we repeat and we still say it to this day. We just say it as the word sincere. So if you wanna know where the word sincere comes from, it's from that practice. And they developed this whole way of going, what what is the real? What, What is the true? What is the picture? How do we know that this is authentic? This is real. This is true. And there's a little bit in the text today as we get to the tail end of the reading, that's a little bit of that question. What is true? What is real? What is good? And I think Jesus gives us here a little bit more of the direction of that, and he certainly has done that in the Sermon on the Mount, and we'll reference back to that. But uh, I want to start with the problem that that occurs, because we just come off of teaching where uh, uh, Jesus has provoked the Pharisees a few times, not by doing anything radical. He's letting his disciples eat grains in the field, things like that. But it's provoked the leadership to, to sort of accuse him, to, to attack him. And they even set him up with this guy who has a withered hand. But, but once again, they're the provocateurs. They're like, hey, Jesus, what do you think about this guy? Um, and Jesus responds. And then Matthew takes this little interjection to say, look, Jesus was involved in a lot of these situations with the Pharisees, but reminds the, the audience, reminds us as, as, as hearers and readers that the work that Jesus came to do was the healing, was the restoration, not the controversies and the yelling in the streets and everything else, that that wasn't the platform Jesus was pursuing or after. And then once again, we're gonna see an interaction uh, where the Pharisees have to accuse him. So uh, starting verse 22, then a demon-possessed man Who was blind and mute was brought to him and he healed him so the man spoke and saw and all the people were amazed and said can this be the son of david now it's a a fun question is jesus the only one who could perform exorcisms is that is that proof that he is god no no right um and and we will see we'll even get to the book of acts and find out that there's Jews wandering around in these places performing exorcisms. Uh, they're not doing it in the name of Jesus. They're, not, they're trying to co opt some of the power of Jesus, but, but they're not believers in Jesus. They are identified as Jews trying to go around and perform these exorcisms, and they're doing so. At least that's how Luke reports it. And so it's, it's possible. So I, I don't think this is Matthew being like, oh, this is proof that Jesus can, is God, but this healing is definitely a multi-layered one, right? So you have the demon possession, then you have the blind, then you have the mute. So, so it's like triple threat of somebody that Jesus now is bringing healing to. Now perhaps you were lucky enough in the first century, maybe you had seen somebody drive out a demon, or maybe you had seen somebody who couldn't speak suddenly speak. But, but this, this triple threat, this, this is going to take some power, right, for this, this triple thing to, to take place. And that's what happens. Because we see the people respond. They're like, whoa, that, that's incredible. Is, is this the guy? I mean, they, they don't, it, it's not certain. It doesn't make it certain for them that clearly this is the Messiah, but they're sort of like, oh, like this guy has some legitimate power. Or is, is this, can this be the son of David? Is this the Messiah? Is this the, the son of David? And that's where they're left with. It's possible. There's real power here. They're, they're identifying that. But the Pharisees heard it and they said, It is only Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. So let's talk about Beelzebub. It certainly came up in the questions. Uh, Beelzebul or Beelzebub, uh, just depends on your translation, it has to do with uh, language. Um, But they're interchangeable terms uh, as the Old Testament goes into the New Testament. Now, the the slight letter difference is is important because it it actually says two different things. Uh, One is Lord of the Flies, and the other one is Lord of the Heavenly Dwelling. But either one of them, it's a reference to, to the Philistine God, Baal, which you encounter plenty of in the Old Testament. It's sort of these, this foreign God who honestly asked, the, the Baal's requirements of the people that followed Baal were, were awful and wicked and, and pretty terrible. And so um, the, the Israelites were right to uh, reject a lot of what Baal represents and is. And it became so associated with Sort of the, the representation of evil. That, that this Philistine God is the prince of demons. Like, what, what this Philistine God represents is so evil and so wicked. And, and Baal had these different names, and, and one of them is probably what the Philistines called him, which was the, the Lord of the heavenly dwellings. But he was also the God of diseases for them. And so, through, through connection, it, 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 he did get connected with flies. Like, a diseased person would more connected to flies, to disease and death, and not. So, Baal's job is the Shuway flies. But I think the Israelites took it and ran with it and says, oh, the the Lord of the flies. I think it became a derogatory term for the Israelites to use against uh, the Philistines uh, and their God, even referring, I think, to the Philistines themselves as the flies. Like, this is your Lord. He's the Lord of flies. That makes you guys flies. So, it gets connected with this most hated God for Israel's history. It's this language. And so um, uh, I was just talking to, to, to Graydon about this. Look, there's a bit of an amalgam of, of names and nomenclatures of Satan, of Beelzebub, of eventually the Latin will add Lucifer into the, to the mix. You have this, this identification. We're not going to dive into demonology and all the language, but it, it is a bit of an amalgam of identifiers uh, that get used. Uh, and so Beelzebub is one of those. It's just one of the representations of evil, one of the names to give to what is evil to the world. And so the Pharisees are cu- accusing Jesus to be connected with this prince of demons, this evil one. And Jesus responds, knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against himself is laid waste and no city or house divided against itself will stand. So it's practical teaching. If a country goes to war with itself, it's not good for the country. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How can his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do, you son- do your sons cast out? Therefore, they will be your judges. So Jesus seems to know where the Pharisees stands. Uh, I'm not always in the camp that Jesus always has his goes on and can read minds and all this kind of stuff. I think he can either hear, overhear kind of some of what they're saying or just probably see a look on their faces uh, that uh, these guys are clearly not interested in Jesus' healing work here uh, other than to, to tear it down. And, and so the argument is Baal, Beelzebub is evil and satanic, right? And demons are evil and satanic, right? So it makes perfect sense that this doesn't work together. That if all of it is this kingdom of evil, how can Jesus drive out evil and work for evil? He's making a very logical argument for these individuals. Now, there's some disagreement of exactly what's being referenced in this, uh, by whom do your sons uh, drive out or cast them out? Um, there's some nuances of sentence construction, uh, there's disagreement, there's different books, different commentaries they are gonna take different routes. Um, it, and I tend to fall in the camp that what's being referenced there is actually the disciples and not the Pharisees, uh, because uh, it makes more sense then, that therefore they will be your judges really referencing ultimately here that the its disciples, that Jesus' point is not, not only him, but his, his, uh, those who are associated with him work these powers, and the hearers have to assess what, or are the, what the disciples doing too. Is, is that evil or is that good? What, what do you say about that as well? And, and, and so, let's just keep going. To But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come to you. So Jesus being very clear, saying, but if what I'm doing is not any of those, any of the Satan things, any of the Beelzebub things, and and so I've just made the logical arguments on why it's not, then what I'm doing, the default is that it is of the spirit of God. It's the only conclusion you can make. Something supernatural happening. Either the supernatural is evil or the supernatural is good and of God. He's making an argument that it's good and of God. And I want to remind us, this is so not the main point, but sometimes this is a good moment to sort of fix a little bit of our theology. <clears throat> Does that mean that when this, when this demon's driving out, been driven out, that this man now is prepared for some future heavenly state, some future kingdom that isn't here yet? But the language Jesus uses is not that at all, right? When someone is set free from various bindings of this world... The effects of sin the pollution that sin brings on so many of us that the kingdom comes on earth in those moments that that heaven on earth is happening and I think that's what Jesus is simply saying in this moment like hey guys did you did you see that did you see the spirit of God free that guy that's the kingdom of God look look here He uses a very present tense understanding of the kingdom now in his language. And he keeps going, or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods? Unless he first binds a strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Um, So it's a bit of a loaded phrase. We we talked about a little bit on the hell week uh, that the early church really connected to this with um, Jesus plundering the grave, plundering uh, the place of death. But but Jesus makes a really strong claim here. That by the Spirit of God, uh, that he is more powerful than any of the evil. That what he is doing in these healings is he's the strong man who is stronger than any other spiritual power that seems to be working in this world. Whether it's Baal or or, um, Satan or Beelzebub, whatever term you want to put on it, that Jesus is the stronger one. Now, once again... What, what are the goods that are being plundered? If Jesus is releasing people from their bondage, and the bondage is the captor, the, the Satan, sin, evil, all of it, what is the thing that he is plundering back, taking? What? What? people, us. like That is what Jesus is doing. He's plundering. You have one who has held people captive. It's like they're in the prison of sin. And Jesus is binding the prison holder and going in and releasing people. That's what he's doing. He's plundering the goods of the people. Now, here, it's specifically around a demon-possessed good, and the goods is this healed, restored individual. But Jesus' work is constantly constantly snatching people out of the entanglements of sin and evil and spiritual blindness, and demonic forces, lies, oppressing the truth, all of it and restoring the image of God, taking it back in them and the kingdom of God is coming upon people. That, that is the theology that we would say we, we agree with. That's, that's what we understand. And then he says, whoever is not with me is against me and whoever does not gather with me scatters. As some of you know, um, Jesus is saying something um, here that in another passage, he will say something that feels, not contradictory, but askew from what he just says here. Uh, in, in Luke 9 and in Mark 9, he says, "Whoever is not against us is for us. And so it's like, Jesus, which, which one is it? Uh, because those don't sound quite the same. But the interactions of both of those are very, very different. Um, in, in the Mark and the Luke one, uh, Jesus is instructing his disciples. And uh, in this one, he's instructing the Pharisees. But there, he's instructing his disciples not to assume too early that somebody doing some work somewhere else is necessarily for or against. It's like, don't, don't move to judgment too quickly, disciples, about this. Um, and he gives some criteria of what to look for, all this kind of stuff. But here, you have the Pharisees, who are actively, seemingly working against the things that Jesus is doing, who are watching what Jesus does and actively calling it satanic, like of Beelzebub, of evil. And so Jesus' phrase here is directed towards those Pharisees of saying, look, you are either a disciple who who follows this or you Pharisees are like actively working against me. Like it's almost an invitation I would argue in of going, look, you're standing opposed to what God is doing. You can stand with me or you can stay there in this sense of rebellion. And he says, therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven. So the blasphemeo uh, in the Greek, to speak ill of, uh, is simply the idea. And I think what all that Jesus is simply saying is that look, it's, it's one thing to critique me. It's one thing to critique my teachings, perhaps even some of my methods. It's another thing to stand in the way of, of what you see God clearly doing. That you were seeing God do this work all around you. You were seeing him free people from a demonic possession. And yet, you Pharisees are calling that evil. And there's, there's a lot in Scripture that God has patience for. There's a lot of it. But there's a few things that seem to finally push God's patience in moments. Uh, into the Old Testament and into the New Testament. It's really when his people, his representatives act as sort of like the anti-story that God is telling. The anti-gospel that God is trying to bring. That the one sin that seems to be the thing that's a struggle for God to have patience for is really when, when God's people work fully contrary to what God is doing. And the Holy Spirit here is bearing testimony. It, it, it's bearing testimony to one thing, and these Pharisees are bearing a counter testimony to the very thing the Holy Spirit is doing. And I don't think Jesus is saying, look, once you do this, it's unforgivable forever or anything like that. I, I don't think that's sort of the phrasing here. But if you're going to stand opposed to what the Spirit seems to be doing in the world and stay in that place, you're going to stand in that place, it's not okay. <clears throat> it's as if uh, Jesus is saying, look, it's clear that God is working through the Holy Spirit and bringing healing. Like, Jesus is pointing out this is of the Spirit, and it's clear disciples or clear Pharisees whose side you are on, and you're accusing that work of the Holy Spirit working in this world as evil. You aren't just disagreeing with some of my methods and practices. You are disagreeing with people being released from bondage to sin. That's the very work of God, and Jesus is saying, you're in a very dangerous place, Pharisees. Now, hear me. This is not about perfection. I don't want you to think that any time we sin, therefore we're blaspheming the Holy Spirit. It's one thing to miss the point. It's one thing to get things wrong. It's one thing to continue stumbling forward in our obedience and to sin and yet seek forgiveness. And the good news, the scandalous news of the gospel, is that Jesus God always, always offers grace in these moments. Time and time again. It's good news. We should know that. We are not saved by our works. It's another thing, though. The people who think they very much are the representatives of God and yet are actually working hard against the things that God is doing in the world. And when you see the work of God and you look at it and you go, that's satanic, that is evil, that is not of God, you you slander it, then you're standing in a place that can't be fixed until you step out of that place. That's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Cool? Cool. And he keeps going, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. but Whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. Now, if you were with us two weeks ago, three weeks ago, there was a usage of the Son of Man. And the question is, what version of the Son of Man do we have? Because the Old Testament has really two different ones. It's very prophetic Daniel picture of this mysterious one who's going to return. Um, and, And there's times where... Uh, we get some of that, but we also get Ezekiel and Psalms use it as humans, humanity, this sort of general language of what it looks like just to be a person. I would argue here, I think it's still the Ezekiel usage, the, the, the sort of generic human usage. This is the son of man that we just saw. And I think Jesus is simply saying, look, you can speak against men all day long. like You, could critique, you can critique, you can tear down some image of God, and some of that can be forgiven. Sure. But you speak against the Holy Spirit. That's another story. And that's, that's the thing that's not okay. And, and so it makes me, it makes me real cautious <clears throat> about what critiques I have for other churches, for Christian groups or revivals or certain movements that might be happening in the world. Sometimes I don't understand them. Sometimes it might seem a bit odd at times and how I see it. Even sometimes there's doctrine that might be clearly askew and there's something wrong with critiquing some of the doctrinal things once in a while. <clears throat> but to look at it and to say, that is not of God, I think is the very thing that Jesus is warning his Pharisees about. And, and hear me, like particularly because we swim in a more reformed stream, Some of the blogosphere, some of the social media posts, some of all that, I'll see it. I'll see it quite often. Oh, that thing at that Methodist University in Kentucky, that's not of God. It's like, okay. And, And we have to be cautious, I think, of what we do or don't call movements of the spirit, because if they are legitimate movements of the spirit for whatever group could be, like if there's revival south of the equator, great, that's amazing shouldn't be like, well, they're all, they're all a bunch of Pentecostals, they're all a bunch of Catholics, it can't be of God. It's like, what? No. Like, if it's the Spirit, it's the Spirit. Sure, we can talk about doctrine, we can correct things, sure, but we should be really cautious on, on the words we use and what we identify as movements of God and not. But let's get to this trees and fruit section. Either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when there is evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks and the good person out of his good good treasure brings forth good. And the evil person out of his evil brings forth evil. I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified and by your words, you will be condemned. Now Jesus is using imagery. He's already used. Uh, if you go back to the Sermon on the Mount, this is very much language he has already spoken. Um, this time, it's a little more focused on, on the words that are coming out of people's lives, but he has used it already in an in even broader way. Matthew 7. This is from the Sermon on the Mount. So, he just covered a couple chapters before. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Our great... DSV needs to know that the plural of fruit is fruit. Um, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes? <laughs> Sorry, I just caught that for some reason. Um, I know you can do either. I'm sure there's some. You can be either. Anyways. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit. And the disease tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear good bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. And so we get, we get this teaching previously. And so Jesus, I think, is picking up on continuing that idea. And Jesus is constantly sort of having this dynamic of the inner self versus the outer self. And he's going to critique the Pharisees by the end, almost sort of bookending the, the Beatitudes with this condemnation of the Pharisees later in Matthew by saying, look, you're, you're like a cup and you guys wash and scrub the outside so well, but the inside just stays dirty. Or like, you're like these whitewashed, pristine things, but you're tombs. Like the inside of you is like a dead body. And so he has this sort of inside-outside critique. What, what is true of the inside? Um... And I want to pick up on that concept a little bit as we, as we unpack this fruit tree thing. Because our culture is really unique and this subject I think gets really hard for us. Uh, and I think there's two big reasons, There's probably a bunch of reasons, but uh, the first becomes a little bit of this world of celebrity. <clears throat> that we have faith leaders, we have amazing social media people, we have great authors, we, we have mega pastors, we, we have all this stuff and these platforms. They're famous and popular. They have a lot of followers. And it's usually because they're great communicators or charismatic or they're really wonderful storytellers. They're they're humorous and they're stories and personal vendettas and all this kind of stuff. They're influential. And they have platforms really built around that particular skill set of communication and winsomeness and and stuff like that. Now, the problem is most of us, 99% of us, don't know these people. Right? Like, we, we just don't, we don't know them. We know a curated version of them, but we don't know them. You don't know what their real family life is actually like. You don't know how they speak to their spouse or to their children if they have them. You don't know what kind of relationship they hold in social settings. You don't know how they treat coworkers or employees or whatever it may be. Like We, we, don't, we don't know. We, we know maybe a curated version of that. And the other problem I think we run into is what is our definition of fruit? And perhaps, perhaps we've already heard the phrase, we're going to know them by their fruit. But what gets us in trouble is how do we define fruit? So when you think of like a fruitful Christian or a fruitful ministry or a fruitful pastor, a fruitful church or a fruitful nonprofit, well, what tends to be the things we think of? What tends to be the things that the world often defines as fruitful? Numbers, yeah, yeah. So influence, platform, Numbers. Conversions, yeah, so churches certainly look for that number. Money, yeah, money. So sometimes like power and, and, and stuff like that, the, the, the ability to, to take in a lot. Yeah, all good things. Popularity, things like that. Sure, those are all things that we tend to look to as fruit. We look to leaders in these categories. Categories without thinking that sometimes we associate. That, that's a fruitful person by what's going on there. <clears throat> Scott Gittani, uh who's, he, if you know him, he's a theologian, but he's part of the Holy Post podcast. Um, he has a great book that was actually, um, I, I use a bit on the Sermon on the Mount, but he talks about this a lot. He says that <clears throat> we are culturally conditioned to, to assess people, both inside the church and outside the church, by professional success. How, how successful, how effective is this person? How many people have they impacted? How much has she achieved? Whatever it may be. And we incorrectly, I think at times, assume an effective leader must be a godly leader, at least in the church or in Christian nonprofits. And in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, the difficulty is that it's clear that the fruit that Jesus seems to talk about throughout the whole sermon is a a character, not an accomplishment. That throughout the sermon, he focuses on inner qualities like... Things like anger and love and lust and generosity and hypocrisy and honesty and anxiety and peace. This means it's entirely possible to be like a very celebrated Christian, to influence all sorts of different people and have a huge ministry, but be a diseased tree producing rotten fruit. And it also means that healthy trees with godly fruit may not achieve very measurable success but the world, that the world would often praise. And so I think Jesus, with these Pharisees, is like, look, you guys have all the power. You guys have all the influence. You guys are like bad trees. Everybody looks up to you, but what is the fruit coming out of your all's lives or mouths? So alternatively, I think Jesus presents generosity and mercy. So like we even have a chart. Generosity, mercy, honesty, gentleness, faithfulness, humility. It's a very different understanding of fruit of what is what, what God values and we get drawn by influence but as I said we have no idea if the person's generous merciful they're they, they're gentle with their spouse or kids or whatever the scenario is if they have humility towards those around them like there's a theologian that I can't follow because I have enough people that were close to him to go he is just a jerk I'm like well if that's the fruit of of this person's life I and, and it was consistent. It wasn't like he was jerk one time. I can I can get through that. But if it's like repeatedly, everybody that seems to interact with him just goes, "This person is just such a jerk." At some point, that's the fruit I have to look at and, and go, "Yeah, I don't I don't know if I can follow that individual." And sometimes we need closeness to certain leaders. And we've created a system of influence. We've created systems of churches and platforming. And guess what? They're going to let you down. Because we just don't know the character of the people that sometimes we love to follow and love the quotes and love the things and love the podcast and all this kind of stuff. Now, I guess I'm going to push back. Doesn't this lead to complacency and not striving for excellence? Like, if we're not worried about some form of success, where does that leave us? But I think the the filter, as, as a follower of Jesus, the filter to always ask is, is what I'm doing good and right and faithful? even if it doesn't lead to tremendous impact, is when I'm doing good and right and faithful. Now, are large crowds the problem? Not necessarily. Jesus didn't say, don't follow people that have a lot of followers. He says, beware these kind of false prophets. But it does make it harder to see how people live. And I hope, I hope here it resonates. I hope what we celebrate, particularly in our leaders, but in, in all of us, is people who are faithful and gentle and merciful and honest and humble and increasing in those things. That is what we should be platforming. People who imbue the kingdom of God and what they speak and how they act. Like I get so tired. Sarah and I joke about this all the time. Every church conference, they're like, we want to make sure that like we're not valuing the wrong things. But then they only bring up like people with mega churches and huge platforms. Because that's how you get people to your conference. But it's communicating a value. Like these are the people that everybody needs to hear from because they have this platform and they have this influence. And and it's this odd system we are into. And I wanna be very pastoral here too, to say that if like you have been hurt by the church and abusive leaders, who didn't embody the kingdom, whatever church. I mean, it might've been here. I hope not, but it might've been here. Perhaps you, you struggled to trust people in leadership positions, in faith, in the church. Hear me, you are listening to Jesus' words Like that is exactly what Jesus says, beware of this. And if you come in here and you've got a little bit of your guard up, then you are doing what Jesus said, which is beware. You need to be on the lookout. And, and those of you, some of you come in with some serious baggage to our church, and, and I know it will take time and closeness for us to earn your trust. I, I know that. And, and you are seeking to beware of the falseness, and that's good. And I pray that this place is a place for healing for you, a place where you come in and can see good leadership and good fruit, the kind of leadership God has called us to embody. Not perfectly. We do not bat a thousand in our leadership but even in our imperfections, we work it out with humility. But before we think this is all just about leaders, though I think it certainly is the direction for Jesus, I want us to connect this to each of us. And, and Sky Gitani continues to do this and I think it's really helpful. And he uses this analogy that at first, I'm like, oh, it's a little goofy, but then it really starts to click. Um, and he says this, I'm gonna read this whole section, but the words will be on the screen because it's a little long. If Jesus was serious, then we will focus more on our life with God rather than our work for him. A good tree will naturally and automatically produce good fruit. That is how Jesus describes his disciples. We're like healthy, thriving trees and the life uh, with God within us is manifest in our love, joy, peace, kindness, mercy we produce. The key to this kind of life, Jesus said, is learning to abide deeply in communion with him. The way a branch abides in a vine or a tree that is rooted in good soil. Jesus actually even uses that analogy in John um, uh, 15. Uh, Sorry. Uh, Our focus should not be on the fruit in our branches, but on the depth of our roots. As we live deeply with Jesus, the fruit will take care of itself. In many Christian communities, however, there is great social pressure to appear godly. uh, This tempts us to focus almost exclusively upon visible, easily measurable fruitfulness, which often gets confused with effectiveness. Rather than developing a life rooted in Christ through prayer, we worry more about displaying the right behaviors and symbols in front of others. What we do that when we do this we become Christmas tree Christians. Christmas trees are beautiful, and they draw attention to themselves in a way natural trees just do not. They are decorated with tinsel and lights covered with glittering glass fruit, but all of the ornaments are there to hide the unappealing truth. Christmas trees are corpses. They're dead cut off from the roots, sustained by a pot of water that must be refilled perhaps every Sunday morning. Eventually, every Christmas tree has its fake fruit removed and is thrown into the curb or burned. And too many of our communities are filled with beautiful but dead Christmas trees. Yet what our Lord desires is the subtle beauty of a fruitful, thriving orchard. And and Jesus is saying, or Sky is saying here, The decorations are there to to hide the truth. And we look to very measurable successors, but it it covers up dead, lifeless trees and delays our death with Sunday services and everything else. And and we live in the the, the default, I think for a lot of us, is we we do live in a self-improvement culture. And we believe that whatever is undesirable, whatever is deficient, whatever is undeveloped in us, can be changed just through a combination of, like, knowledge and willpower. If we just read the right book, if we just get into the right class, if we just do the right program, we just listen to the right podcast, that will, that will be our solution. That will be how we become the person we want to be. Yet Jesus presents a different vision of human potential. He compares people to trees and fruit a tree produces, he says. It's determined by the identity of the tree itself. That's, that's the goal here. A good tree produces good fruit, a bad tree produces bad fruit. An apple tree can't produce apricots, and a peach tree can't do kumquats, whatever. Yeah, of course, the, the fruit everybody thinks of. <laughs> but, but no amount of knowledge or willpower or effort will change what the tree produces is inherently a tree's identity. Fruit will happen. And, and Jesus goes this way, in John too, like, you abide in me, then the fruit comes. And this is perplexing for a lot of us in the self-improvement culture. When we read the fruit of the Spirit as love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, uh, faithfulness, self-control, we immediately look for a program of going, how do I do more of those? I wanna be a more patient person. What's, what's the thing I need to do for patience? I need to directly pursue more patience now. And the call of Christ instead is not to improve our fruit, but instead to seek a transformation of identity. Our old selves must be uprooted and a new self planted in God and to become trees rooted in God, thriving on his spirit. Then, then we will naturally, even, even at times effortlessly, produce good fruit. And hear me, we, a lot of the conversations happening sort of in, in leadership right now is how do we become that? How do we become a church of that? It's much of our vision of where we want to be, and there's a lot that probably in the next year that we will really begin to to roll out. I, I think by this time next year, we'll have much more clarity of exactly how that looks. But it's a people abiding in Jesus, being renewed by Jesus, living out our identity in Jesus. And there are ways to abide in practices in prayer and fasting and study and meditation of scripture and sabbathing and uh, in, in solitude, silence, all these practices that God gives to His people to abide in him, to be with him, and to walk with him, and even outward ones of communal practices, of generosity and stuff like that, to, to abide with him. And, and we learn those things. And every day, ordinary practices, some of us are already doing pretty regularly, that bring life, that start changing us internally, and that brings about the external change of, of the fruit. And that's really the picture of faithfulness. And faithfulness to Jesus that, and the things he wants to produce in us when we abide in him. So as we talk about good fruit and good trees, I think that's the invitation. And even Jesus tells his disciples, look, if you or the Pharisees, you're against us, or you can be here with me. You can can be in my closeness, in my proximity. And the Pharisees are choosing to be far. And my hope is that we are a church, that people press in, to be near, to be near, to to abide, to dwell with and in Jesus.